Anyway, good to be with you guys again this morning. My name is Paul. Um, I used to be a pastor here at the, or not a pastor, but an elder at The Rock um, from 2009 to 2012. And at that point, the Lord called me into ministry and we went off to seminary. And now I'm a pastor down in Abbotsford at Northview Community Church. So it's great to be back here with you guys and be able to share God's word with you. We're going to be continuing in the book of Haggai like uh, we started last week. Uh, so if you have your Bibles with you, please turn there. Haggai chapter 2, starting in verse 10 this week. So start, uh, when I was entering gr- my grade 12 year of high school, I really had little care for academics. I was a guy who was there to hang out with my friends and especially my girlfriend, who did the, did the mic just die or is it good? It's good? Okay. Uh, my girlfriend, who is now my wife, she's at the back. Um, but when I was going into grade 12, I did not care about academics, so much so that when it came to choosing my electives, I had one criteria. Does this class have a final exam or not? And so I went through. If it had one, nope, that one I'm not taking. I'm just going to do the bare minimum. I needed English 12 and maybe a couple other things, whatever. But then I had PE, band, choir. These are the kinds of classes I had. And two of the classes I had were marketing classes. And in these marketing classes, what you did was you ran the school store. I'm just going to get a mint because my mouth's a bit dry. We ran the school store, and basically we, we sold candy and school you know, paraphernalia, stuff like that. But then we also ran the lunchtime, the hot lunchroom. Um, and the idea of the class was learn how to run a little business, how to balance budgets, all that kind of stuff. But in this class, there was one project that we had, and it was worth quite a big portion of your mark. And... When, we, when it was assigned to us, I was like, oh, yeah, fine. I put it off, put it off, put it off. And then one day I showed up at school, and, one of my, and our cl- my classmates were like, yeah, that paper's due in marketing this afternoon. And I was like, come again? This afternoon, oh, dear. And one of my classmates, I was talking with her, and she was like, well, just take mine, copy it. Rechange it a little bit, hand it in. He won't notice, come on. And I was like, Deal. So I took it, lunchtime, went to the computer lab, typed it out, changed a few things, handed it in as my own. The next week, I get it back, I get to my desk, it's sitting there, I flip it over, zero. Okay. So this is, thought I could get away with something? Not so much. But then I had the audacity to actually think, well, why don't I go ask the teacher why I got a zero? Maybe I can actually manipulate myself into getting a better grade on this. So I go up to the front, and he goes, hey, I don't really want to talk to you. Okay, so this is for real. This is going to be a zero. It's a significant portion. Even though I didn't care about academics, I did not want to fail a class. So I went home that day, and as I'm at home, I'm like, man, I've got to... I've offended the teacher, who, who was actually one of my favorite teachers. So I've offended the teacher, and I've cheated. I know this is all wrong. Knew from the beginning, but I did it anyway. So I make a phone call, call him at home, and said, you know, I am so sorry for doing this. I know I shouldn't have done it, all these things. Is there anything I can do to get something in this class? And he was like, just do the project as you were originally told to do it, hand it in next week. 
All right. So I thought, good, I'm getting this second chance. So I do it, hand it in. When I get it back, the day of truth, flip it over. There's a big A on the top. I got an A. So this teacher who didn't have to even give me a second chance, not only now gave me that second chance, but gave me the second chance with the best reward possible on this project. Perfect score. Have you guys ever had a situation like that? Where you've done something wrong and you've tasted the bitterness of the bad news and then somebody comes along and does something and turns it and all of a sudden you're like, oh, this is good news. And because you know the bad news, the good news is even better. Have you guys ever had anything like that? Because that kind of story, what this teacher did for me and now... Think about it. The sweetness of that has now stuck with me my whole life. If I would have gotten a good grade on the first one, I probably would have forgotten about that whole situation. But because he had the truth to put a zero on it and then to have the grace to give me the A at the end, man, it stuck with me. But that's just a shadow of the grace that God gives us. So I think as we look at today's text, we're going to see a little bit of this. And I think we're going to be able to walk away with looking at the big idea being that in Christ, we don't need to fear the bad news because of the good news. In Christ, we don't need to fear the bad news because of the good news, because of all that God has done for us. So there's three points to today's sermon. Number one, the bad news. Number two, the good news. And number three, fear not, Jesus wins. All right? Okay. So point number one, the bad news, starting Haggai chapter 2, verse 10. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. So if you remember last week's message, if you were here, did the first two-thirds of the book of Haggai, primarily an exhortation for the people of Israel to start rebuilding the temple again. They had had a 15-year project delay. The place is in ruins. God is upset with them. And he's saying, people, consider your ways. Get your priorities straight. And number two, I, the Lord your God, am with you. Just the same way I was with the Israelites coming out of Egypt in the Exodus, I am also with you as you rebuild this. That's the primary message of last week. So today's text takes place two months later. So the temple project, or the, the, yeah, the temple rebuilding project had started over, been going for two months, and God sends another word through the prophet Haggai. So continuing verse 11 says, thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, Does it become holy? And the priests answered and said, No. Then Haggai said, If someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? And the priests answered and said, It does become unclean. So what's easier to transfer, impurity or purity? The basic question that's being asked here. 
What's easier to transfer? Or in some, an analogy from today, if you have a pot of water cooking gluten-free noodles, does the water from the gluten-free noodles make the regular noodles gluten-free? No. Any celiac can tell you, no. Right? Or the other way, does the water from the regular noodles, if it goes and touches the gluten-free noodles, does it make those contaminated with gluten? Oh, yes. If you talk to any celiac or gluten-free person like people in my family, they will tell you that this is the case. And there will be problems health-wise. There's ramifications for this. But the impurity of the regular noodles will contaminate the gluten-free. And this is the same idea of what's, what the priest or what the Lord is asking them here. What transfers easier, the impurity or the purity? So what's going on here? Well, basically, back in their day when they had the sacrificial system, the priests would bring a sin offering and they'd have to slaughter it and then they would have to take the meat and eat it. So Leviticus 6, starting in verse 26, says, The priest who offers it for sin shall eat it. In a holy place it shall be eaten. In the court of the tent of meeting, whatever touches its flesh shall be holy. And when any of its blood is splashed on a garment, you shall wash that on which it was splashed in a holy place. So the priest would slaughter the animal and they would burn up everything they have to burn. And then the stuff he's supposed to eat, he would actually fold up part of his robe and he'd put the meat in it and then carry it to the place he's supposed to eat. And you can imagine, right? As he's trying to lay it out on the table, the robe might touch other things. So is the robe going to make, by touching these other things, going to make them holy? No, it's not. So continuing, then Haggai answered the Lord, or answered and said, so is it with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands and what they offer here or there is unclean. Notice God doesn't call them my people and he doesn't say my nation. No, he says this people, this nation. These are like derogatory terms basically that are normally used about out for outside peoples people that are surrounding the nation of israel people that are opposed to them this is these words that he uses here even the word for nation is the word goy which means gentile so his own people who are here who have restarted the temple project and who've been working for two months now he's coming along and he's saying to them you, bet you guys are basically just as unclean as Gentiles. That's what you're like. You think working on this temple is going to make you clean? You think working on this temple is going to make you righteous? Just because my, t- my presence is going to dwell in here doesn't mean that you touch the temple and now you're clean. Just like touching the fold of the garment wouldn't make you holy. No, working on this temple is not making you holy, people. So imagine being the Israelites at this time, and you're working there. You're doing the work. You've been there for two months, and you've, the walls are starting to take shape. The place is starting to get cleaned up. And you're feeling good. You're like, yes, we as a people are doing what we're supposed to do. We're following the, the Lord's orders. We're, we're obeying. Finally, we're doing something for our nation. And the Lord comes and says, yeah, you guys still aren't worthy. 
you still aren't worthy of me. It's a little discouraging, isn't it? I mean, last week, we saw him come to them and talk to them about getting, considering their ways and getting their priorities straight. So they do, and they start obeying, and now they're obeying, and they're loving him, and they're serving him. And he's going, yeah, you guys are still unclean. If you read through this, just if you read through the whole book, and I encourage you to do that because it's really short, you can get it done easily. Um, but you read through from beginning to end. If you were to stop at this point, you could stop there and go, what kind of a God is this? I thought he was supposed to be a loving father. Why would he do this? Why would he encourage them to build and then once they start, call them names. Call them Gentiles. So you can see how People, um, and there might be people here, so just hear me out on this for a second. There might be people here who have an issue with God as Father because of their own Father. I don't know if that's you, but I do know people who are in that situation where their father sinned against them so bad as they were growing up that when, now when they look at God and they think of Him as Father, they have a tough time with that title makes me think of a story that I heard about a boy who wanted to spend time with his uh, workaholic father. And his dad just spent so much time at work, was never at home, and the boy just wanted to be with him and wanted to be in his presence and just spend time with him. So while his father was at work, he would go into his office and he would read his daily journal, which talked about all the important things that were happening at work and all the things that he thought was just worth spending his time and his, his life on. And the boy was like, oh, if I, could, if I could be in here, if I could be a part of his life. And then one day, there was a day he couldn't go to work. And his son was so excited because he was at home. And so his father took him outside to the nearby lake and they fished. And he taught him how to fish, how to tie a lure. They came home at the end of the day and the son was so happy. Just spent so much time in his father's presence. This for, just for this one day. And then the next day, his father goes to work and he goes into his office and he reads the journal. And it says, couldn't work today. Went fishing with the boy. What a waste. If that is your idea of what a father is, because of an experience like that in your life, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. But please don't let that taint your view of who God is. Because when God brings the bad news of who we are, he is not judging us in that moment. He is saying, listen, this is the truth. You are sinful. You are impure. But the bad news is always followed by the good news. Never just stop with the bad news. Keep reading. Because the fact is that we are, we as humans, if you think about it, we are that bad. We are unholy. We are set apart from him. He is holy. We are not. He is the creator. We are the creation and a broken creation. Not only are we undeserving as if we were 
some kind of a neutral being who hasn't done anything, but we are ill-deserving of him because we have sinned against him and we have rebelled against him. But when he shows us the bad news and when he tells us that, he is calling us to come to him in worship, come to him in repentance. He wants us to come to him and spend time in his presence. He is not the workaholic father who spends so much time away that he has no time for us and that he thinks time with us is a waste. No, he is a loving father who wants to be with you and he wants what's best for you. God is not a wicked father who just points out our sin and leaves us in it. First, we must acknowledge, this is the truth, first we must acknowledge the bad news so that we understand how good the good news is. So point two, the good news. So starting verse 15, now then, so now that you know what the bad news is, consider from this day onward. So you can sense that something's coming, right? Something's changing here. He's saying, consider what's happened in the past. Consider this truth. It's good to know the truth of who you are and your standing. But from this day onward, He's pointing them forward, saying, don't forget who you are, but as you move forward, before the stone, so continuing verse 15, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. I struck you with all the products of your toil of blight and mildew and with all the hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. So God's saying to them, remember all those fruitless years you had, all the times that you tried and you were hoping the crops would bring in everything that you wanted it to bring in, and it just didn't. Yes, he's saying, I struck that on you so that you would turn to me. I want you to come to me and worship me. You see, when God brings bad things into our lives, when he shows us the bad news, and even when he brings bad things into our lives, he is wanting us to come to him. This is an act of grace on his part so that we will worship him. He is always pursuing us and will use any means necessary. Continuing verse 18, consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, Since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. From this day on, I will bless you. Israelites, listen, even though you've sinned against me greatly, even though you're no better than the Gentile nations, and all those people that you around that are around you that are oppressing you and those people that you don't like and you don't want to be around and you don't want to hear from even though you're just like them I'm going to bless you. God says I'm choosing to bless you. They didn't deserve to be blessed. They didn't deserve the favor of the Lord, but he still out of his goodness chooses to bless them just as he chooses to bless you and me. 
You see, we aren't just undeserving, we are ill-deserving. Undeserving doesn't acknowledge how deep we are into this vat of sin. Ill-deserving is what we are because we have actually earned his judgment by what we've done. And we've earned death, Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. God blesses ill-deserving people like the Israelites and like you and me because he wants to. That's how deep his love is for you. Listen, listen to these words from Romans 5, starting verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to even die. So you think about that, right? If, you're, if there's a gunman and he has his, he's pointing at somebody that you know and love, and you're like, I'll jump into the, in front of that bullet for that person, right? You might be willing to do that. But if he comes in here and, or goes into some, somewhere else, and you find yourself in public, and he's pointing at somebody that you know is a serial killer, or that you know is a convicted felon, you go like, nah, maybe not. But, continuing on, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When the world hears this message, they go, that's crazy. Why in the world wouldn't God let these people just take the punishment on themselves? People say they want justice, but they don't. people don't want justice. They want grace. You need grace. We need God's grace, and this grace that he shows is amazing, and it's crazy. Think about that. While we're still sinners, while we are still rebellious, while we are still against him and offending him and acting like his enemy, he sends Christ to die for you. Isn't that something to rejoice over? Christ took, the, Christ took the execution for you. He, he didn't just forgive your sins. He did that, yes. He hasn't just adopted you into his family. He has done that, though, yes. He has. But he has paid the price for your sins in your place and then given you his righteousness so that you could be with him for eternity. Like, there's no other worldview, there is no other news out there that can be near as good as that. See, we have to understand the bad news in order to see how good the good news is. And that is amazing grace. And John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, said this, When I get to heaven, I shall see three wonders there. The first wonder will be to see many people there whom I did not expect to see. The second wonder will be to miss many people whom I did expect to see. And the third and greatest wonder of all will be to find myself there. That should be the posture of the Christian, right? We need to be reminding ourselves of the bad news so that we see how good the good news is. We need to taste the bitterness of the bad news so that the sweetness of the good news is the sweetest thing that we've ever known. So do you remind yourself of this on a regular basis? 
We need to be reminded of this on a regular basis, on a daily basis. We need to be going to his word and understanding what he says about who we are and who we are in our own self and then who we are in Christ. A friend of mine told me about the first time that he understood the gospel. He was about seven years old and he had disobeyed and lied to his parents about it. And so his parents, his dad was like, all right, son, we got to go in the other room. And he was like, oh, man, the licking's coming. So he gets in the other room, and he sits down, and his dad starts taking off his belt. And he's like, ooh, dad's serious about this one. And then his dad sits down and starts using the belt. But instead of on his son, he starts using it on himself. And he starts smacking his own thigh with the belt over and over. And he's, my friend said he was standing there. He's vividly remembering it, going, I was standing there going, like, shocked. What in the world is going on here? And then he finally stopped, and he jumped on his dad, and he stopped him. He said, Dad, don't do that. You don't deserve that. I deserve that. I'm the one who lied about everything I did. Do it to me. And his dad hugged him and said, son, this is what God has done for you. And now you're all going to go home and whip yourselves, aren't you? <laughs> but that is the, this is the extent to which God has, this is what God has put himself through in his own son, taken that punishment in our place. And it's amazing. Okay. No, <laughs> no, I've got my own, thanks. <laughs> and because of this good news, we can face the bad news. So, so when you face the bad news, when you hear the bad news about yourself or when you're confronted with something that you've done maybe, maybe there's something that you're even thinking about right now that you're just like, man, I can't own up to that. But when you think of that thing, whatever it is, you have two options. Number one, you can defend yourself. And you can keep perpetuating the lie. And as you defend it and justify it and think about it and talk and go, oh, and you keep, your, your words just keep building this snowball of lies that builds bigger and bigger and bigger. And it puts this pressure. You keep going deeper and deeper into this vat of sin. And the weight of it on you just continues to crush you and brings your heart into a heart of coal. So that's one option. Or the other option, you can defer it all to Jesus. And you can go to him and you can persevere in your faith and you can stand in the face of that bad news and own up to whatever consequences are going to come your way and know that Jesus is with you. As you rebuild your life, he is with you in the midst of it. No matter how hard it is and no matter what you have to face, he will be with you. We can face whatever bad news comes our way because he will give us the grace that's needed and remind us that in the end, Jesus wins. So point three, fear not, Jesus wins. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. 
I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. So there's a parallel with some earlier verses, chapter 2, verses 6 through 9, where he talks about shaking the heavens and the earth. That one was about taking their plunder and building his temple, bringing the gold and the silver in. This one is about final judgment on the nations. He's saying, I will destroy the strength of the kingdoms and the nations, overthrow the chariots and their riders. Judgment will come against all of God's opponents and all against all of the worldviews that oppose him and all of the nations and the kings and the people and the whoever that oppose him. Judgment will come, he's saying. Like a good gardener that pulls out the thistles, God will do the same with those who oppose him and his people. And it will be all done under the care of his chosen servant. In this text, it's Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel in the history of Israel goes on to be very fondly remembered. We don't have a lot written in the history books about things that he did after this, but he did lead them in the rebuilding of the temple. And even up to 200 and 300 years after his life, the Israelites actually wrote poems about him and about Zerubbabel because of what he led them through and because he was a descendant of David. So this, this language where he calls Zerubbabel my servant and I have chosen you, this is messianic language, talking about David and David's future heir that will reign forever. So while Zerubbabel partially fulfills this prophecy, it is fully fulfilled in Jesus. Only in Christ would the effects of sin all be overturned. Only in Christ will the prevailing rulers and worldviews be judged once and for all. Only in Christ will Satan, sin, death, abuse, all the evil in the world be cast aside forever. And the entire kingdom of God belongs to Jesus. He is God's chosen final servant, prophesied about so many times throughout the Old Testament. And if you're a Christian and you are in Christ, you are chosen too. So take heart, fear not, Jesus wins. And one last word before I close. Right in the middle of the book of Haggai, he uses these words, fear not. He says, for I am with you. That's the Lord speaking, saying, fear not. Don't, you don't have to worry about all the op oppression from the outside, all of the worldviews that oppose you, all the things that are coming against you, and all the things that are wanting to make you say, I give up. He's saying, fear not. I am with you as you face these things. And when we look at all of the things that he's exhorting the people to in this book, we should remember those words, fear not. So fear not, consider your ways. Fear not, for I am with you, says the Lord. Fear not, for my spirit is with you, says the Lord. Fear not, I will overthrow the enemies. Fear not, I will bless you. Fear not. When you face the bad news, fear not. 
For the good news is that Jesus has paid the price for those sins. And you can have eternal life in Him. And if you're not a Christian yet today and you think you're too far gone, fear not. You can turn now and put your faith in Him. Let's pray together.